0: It's Rock and Vino on KSRO, brought to you by American Ag Credit, money for agriculture.
1: Welcome to Rock and Vino. My name is Michelle. My partner here is Coco. Hello. And we are so honored to have our guest on the line with us today. Jerry Casali is the co-founder of Devo and proprietor of winery The 50 by 50. Thank you so much for talking with us today.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Uh, so why don't we start out a little bit by talking about your winery, the fifty by fifty? Uh, I understand that the name of the winery is closely tied to an architect. Can you tell us about that?
0: What What happened there is that um, my my long, long gestating desire to actually make wine and put it out was uh, partially funded by my good friends who are restoration architects, and they were. Um, hmm. A building, uh, or rather, creating for the first time, a Mies Van Der Roy house that never got a commission. So he drew it up, never had it made, and they got the rights from his grandson in Chicago to build it. And where they were building it is on a 25 acre property uh, next to Kenzo up up Monticello Road in Napa, in what I guess considered wooden. Which is um, surrounded by great Cabernet and Merlot vines, and I, in the meantime, while that, that all that's been going on, I, I have a you know passion for Pinot Noir. So, I started sourcing Pinot Noir grapes from the best vineyard I could growers I could find that would sell to me and lease me certain blocks and rows, and I've been doing that. I've because Pinot Noir is one of my first loves. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, the house was called, by Mies van Roel, the 50 by 50. That's what his plan said. Because, oddly enough, it was 50 feet by 50 feet. Hmm. And it's all glass exterior walls and could only be built where nobody can look at you. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> you'd be busted for indecent exposure. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the fifty by fifty, and it still is not completed. Although it's sitting there, ready to complete, and um, people that are members of my wine club have have been treated to the site of the uh, of the ongoing project. I drive them up there and let them see it. <laughs> oh,
2: that's great. Do you know roughly when it'll be done, and are you going to eventually open it to the public for um, for for tastings?
0: that was the whole plan that's mm-hmm. where you'd come to taste the 50 by 50 mm-hmm. and i wanted to make a a you know a limited edition proprietary red that's based on cabernet but more of a bordeaux style blend mm. and i've even secured the name and the logo but it's simply not ready to go
2: do you know roughly how long it'll uh, it'll take
0: you know <laughs> you know, I would have said it would have been done three years ago, so yeah. that's a good indication of the real answer being, at this point, since <laughs> I'm not driving the boat, so to speak, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah.
3: yeah.
1: So let's talk a little bit about your road to uh, becoming the proprietor for the 50 by 50, uh, because you yeah. didn't grow up uh, really interacting or having much to do with wine at all.
0: Certainly not. Uh, Wine was a uh, you know like a enigmatic foreign idea in Ohio, and when people did have wine, they were drinking things like Mogan David or Night Train. <laughs> and when uh, when I finally tasted some terrible wine that uh, friends of my parents had at their house, I thought, who would want to drink this crap? <laughs> like, oh, terrible, you know. And it wasn't until I went to college. And met people from out of state who had grown up way differently than me that they took me to a state store because that's where you had to buy wine in Ohio the only in state stores where you'd buy booze and wine tightly controlled and they bought some decent uh, oddly enough Bordeaux You know, mm. cause that was certainly in the late 60s the early you know the, that was the go to kind of wine for anybody that was young who thought they knew anything about wine. They wanted the big guns, heavy wines. And, you know, the first time I had a decent Bordeaux, it was like, okay, maybe I do like wine. <laughs> and it, it started there, and it was sporadic. But then when, you know, when we traveled to California as Devo and got a deal with Warner Brothers Records and relocated here, it was fortuitous because it was at the height of the explosion of this revolution in in wine and food awareness in right. a new cuisine like you know gone were the madmen days suddenly and this was right when uh, like up north um, Alice Waters had opened her place mm-hmm. in Berkeley and and uh, you know Jeremiah tower was opening stars and down here in la there was michael mccarty opening michael's and bruce martyr opening west beach cafe and wolfgang puck on their heels opening up spago Hmm. and these guys were young and cool they liked devo i liked them (laughs) i loved this food Uh, my mind was being blown on a weekly basis with this cuisine and they turned me on. They said, here, try this, drink this with this. And it was all wow. California wines. They were championing California wines. And, of course, we know the the big names back in the 70s who were, you know, early on, serious producers who already were producing really fine wine, and, uh, and now suddenly on a world stage be, becoming respected for it. And I was just in the middle of that, you know, just fortunate and uh, it was a revelation it was you know it's like being turned on to a drug that well, there's no downside <laughs> you know.
2: occasional hangover um, sure but besides that yeah maybe yeah. <laughs> now yeah, Jerry do but, you remember the first like Pinot Noir that you tasted that you were just like that wow like this is this is my wine
0: yeah um I do and 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 believe me, it was Pinot Noir was late to the game for me. Um, it, of course, the it was French Burgundy before American Pinot Noir mm-hmm. that blew my mind because a French promoter one night after we played La Coupe I mean, uh, no, not La Coupe was at the Palace. He took us to La Coupe which was famous French bistro at the time that everybody hung out in. You know, open till like two, three in the morning, and that's where the whole art crowd always was. And he took it upon himself to bring some DRC to the table.
3: Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and
0: he goes here, Jerry. You, you like wine? And I'm <laughs> like, I think so. Yeah. Here, drink this. And it was like, oh my god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are like, okay, I want more, you know. And he just laughed at me. Of course I wanted more. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was drinking it with, with uh, some sliced duck breast.
1: Ooh, oh, my gosh. Yum. Amazing. Perfect yeah. pairing. Yeah. And,
0: I was, you know, 31, and, and that did it. And then I think the first Pinot Noir in America I truly loved was William Sellium.
2: Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Right? That did it. And then and then slowly, as you know, American Pinot Noirs adopted much more the style of French winemaking and quit making these sickeningly overripe and extracted oak, over-oaked Pinots and started making balanced Pinots that went with a variety of foods and had a nice clean balance between the acid and the fruit, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, you could drink them, unlike a lot of French wine, you could drink them like three or four years after they were bottled and they were ready to drink.
1: We're noticing that here uh, with your wines, that you have them with a screw top,
3: Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm.
2: is awesome. You're never going to get a corked wine.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I for almost 10 years, I used cork. Mm Mm-hmm. And the cork kept getting more and more unreliable because yeah. you know what's going on with cork, right, mm-hmm. and the supply of cork and just the quality of cork. And I was getting, you know, complaints and oxidation uh, with bad cork, like at least one bottle every two cases.
3: Hmm. Yeah. That,
0: that adds up. And and I thought, you know, my wines are meant to be they're, – they're not going to be cellared for 20 years. They're – They're meant to be drunk. Even the Pinot Noir, like it hits its high point at five, six years, its plateau of readiness. And then it'll start to decline a little after that. And with rosé, of course, come on. You want to drink it the first time it can be released.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: with With all the advances in the technology of screw caps, they're not like the old screw caps. And they keep the wine quite well and they prevent a lot of bad things from going wrong early on. So that's why I went to those. Plus, I noticed that waiters really hate having to cork wine, <laughs> and less, less of them know how to do it these days because, yeah. they're, you know, they're, it, restaurants don't have trained staff anymore. They can't afford it. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get restaurant staff at all. Since the pandemic, it's gotten 100% worse. So they love just yeah. Cap off. They're more likely to, you know, recommend my wine to their diners than a wine they have to uncork.
1: Right. We are talking with Jerry Casali. He is the co-founder of Devo and the proprietor of the 50 by 50. We'll be right back here on KSRO.
2: It's
0: Rockin' Vino on KSRO, brought to you by American Ag Credit, money for agriculture.
1: We are talking with Jerry Casali. He is uh, the proprietor for the 50 by 50 wine brand, uh, which you can find online at the 50 by 50 com. Uh, he is also the co-founder of Devo. And that's where we want to take our conversation next. So we want to talk to you about uh, the founding of Devo and um, your experiences at Kent State, because I know that they were seminal in... The rest of your life obviously uh, puts you on a certain path after the tragedy that happened there. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, to really bottom line it, I would have to say that, in all honesty, um, had Kent State killings May 4th, 1970, not happened, I doubt if Devo would have come into existence, because in a parallel universe, had they not happened, I would have headed out to Ann Arbor University for my graduate work because I had switched from my liberal arts major being uh, a full academic program with English literature, compar- comparative English literature being my, ma- my major. I had switched to studio art in my junior year. And so I was carrying this insane course load juggling. Two different programs and i got a scholarship to go to ann arbor for graduate work but since the killings happened and since i was a member of an activist student group against the vietnam war called sds students for a democratic society i got caught up in the politics of the era where the four republican governors of the four states ohio uh Pennsylvania, Michigan and I think Illinois, Indiana. Uh they they decided it was outside agitators that had caused all this to happen. You know, they blamed the students, certainly not the National Guard. And so they any student who had been a member of a political organization that was against the war suddenly lost their scholarship or was denied uh, admission into graduate school out of state in any of those states. So I suddenly had nowhere to go.
3: Hmm.
0: (laughs) Couldn't go to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I uh, came home with my tail between my legs and went back to my professors at Kent State University who liked me and and, uh, who could write letters of recommendation. And since I had a high grade point average, I, I was accepted into graduate school at Kent State University. And that's when everything changed because there were, there were several visiting professors that happened to come in that following fall and in 71 the next year who were pivotal in, kind of giving my academic friends and I the kind of like, you know, information underpinnings in in political science, in fiction, in historical books, uh, art history. They, these guys were amazing. And, and, and I would have never met them mm-hmm. if, had I not had to come back. And it was them feeding us this information that, led me to come up with this admittedly satirical idea of de-evolution, like that there wasn't evolution, that what we were in fact seeing was a decline in consciousness and um, a rolling back of all this progress that had been pushed, you know, mid-century, that everything kept getting better and science taking over and life, you know, becoming... uh, uh, um, Less hard for the masses and all, all, all the propaganda of freedom and capitalism, and it, it didn't look that way to us. And and these guys were. Were, were telling us why actually
3: mm-hmm.
0: that you know beneath the brand of freedom that we were all believing in and being fed, there was another reality in America. You know that goes all the way back to, you know, genocide of Native Americans and lynchings of blacks and this and that, and that, you know, mass advertising in the military-industrial complex were, in fact, creating a a more controlled, less free society and where information was being uh, hoarded and disinformation was being used by Madison Avenue to dumb people down. And that's what we saw. And that's what the evolution was about. We were warning people... Like canaries in a coal mine, that they were giving up their individuality, that they were, uh, it, you know, voluntarily not thinking, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, you got, you know, that's why a song like "Freedom of Choice," freedom of choice is what you got, freedom from choice is what you want, mm-hmm. you know, ha ha ha. Right. It was it, these were gentle warnings, you know, with a big dollop of entertainment and satire. And it was a multimedia presentation because I'd been an artist, you know, and was applying all my art, visual aesthetics to Devo. And, uh, and so that's why it involved film from the beginning, and it involved theatrical staging from the beginning. Because we had studied Bauhaus, we had studied the well, um, Dadaists who put on absurdist performances in the 20s with amazing costumes and stage sets. And we were inspired by all that.
1: Do you so think that the, the the audiences who were coming to see you early on, um, do you think that they understood the message you were trying no. to get across?
0: No, not at all. I don't think they knew any of that, nor did they give a crap about it. <laughs> uh, somebody asked Bob Dylan a, a long time ago, like in the early 70s, like, well, doesn't, doesn't it bother you that most people don't know what you're talking about in the song like a Rolling Stone? and he said, no, I'm glad they don't.
3: <laughs>
0: if they did, I never would have been a hit.
1: Yeah,
3: right. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, I remember that. And I thought, what? At the time. And now I know what he was talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I mean, as we were getting ready for this conversation here, I, I asked some of my coworkers, you know, like, oh, what should we be asking Jerry? And they said, the hats, the hats. I'm like, okay, can we d- okay. dig a little deeper than the hats? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, the hat's got an interesting story, though, because it's it's like the good part of Devo that we always used to call the high meets the low, meaning you take the junkiest part of culture and you connect it to the most high-minded, you know, high art history of culture, mm-hmm. and that's Devo, and we did that on purpose. But the hat, you know, that's based on originally ziggurats and, you know, Mayans, and then It's also based on a a lighting fixture that hung from the ceiling of my uh, elementary school. And I used to stare at it all the time because I hated being there every day. (laughs) And I hated the nuns and the way they treated me. And I used to stare at this Art Deco lamp fixture that was white milk glass Mm. and hanging from three chains from the ceiling. And believe me, if you change the scale of that white milk glass fixture in the ceiling, it's basically the red hat.
2: Wow. <laughs> Looking
0: down to a size that fits a head. Right? <laughs> so and, how did you find... So it was...
2: Sorry, go ahead. Yeah.
0: No, it's that, that's it. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the, just the form, the physical form, the design was really, you know, uh, mm-hmm. mesmerizing to me. And then mm-hmm. later on you find out about the significance of temples and ziggurats and mm-hmm. and, uh, and pyramids. And we were reading about Wilhelm Reich and his energy dome pyramid, and people would get in it to try to like recycle their psychic energy and all mm-hmm. these
3: whack mm-hmm. stuff. I so love cool. it.
0: So that's that's why we called them energy domes.
2: <laughs> love that. With uh, you know you traveling with Devo and um, and now being so into to wine and food and whatnot, I read that you coordinated the group's culinary stops during your tour. And, Any um, much as possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, um, so how did you do that? And, like, what, what restaurants did you stop at? What was the most memorable one, um, that you, that you guys visited?
0: A lot of my friends are in the restaurant business. They still are. And, and of course, we talk about it all the time. And when I traveled a lot, there'd be restaurants that I would go to that I would keep up with. And so, all those restaurants that were still, still around when we went back out on tour we'd go to those but i'd i tap my friend's pool of knowledge about where to go now like mm-hmm. what are people talking about mm-hmm. now where would you go and then of course you can use your online tools like i didn't used to be able to because it yeah. wasn't there <laughs> and uh and you kind of narrow it down like okay what's near the venue what will still be open when we're off stage um you know and you you try to plan it and you're just trying to give everybody in the band a chance to eat well and eat healthily because when you're on the road, you're often subjected to chaos and you end up doing things you wouldn't do and eating things you wouldn't eat at times you wouldn't do it. And it starts to take its toll. Mm. And life's too short for one bad meal, as you know. Mm
3: -hmm. And
0: uh, it's more important than ever when you're like burning yourself out on stage that you have a little reward, you know, and that you replenish by going to a decent restaurant. I suppose to really answer your question specifically, one of the most memorable things that pops out was being in Chicago and going to Alinea.
2: Oh, <laughs> yeah! wow. How, that must have been amazing.
0: Yeah, nobody else had ever been there. I had, but uh, by the time they like take the tablecloth off and put the fitted rubber tablecloth on for dessert and bring all the uh, dry ice-infused uh, bits that look like pebbles from the moon surface that are, <laughs> you know, steaming like 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 dry ice in a in a stage show or something, and it's chocolate, right? Mm,
3: mm-hmm.
0: With a dessert wine to match it. I th- I think even Mark Mothersbaugh's mind was blown. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, was, he was being very funny.
1: We um, are so excited to be able to chat with you. Jerry Casali is the co-founder of Devo and proprietor of the 50 by 50. You can find the wines online at the 50 by 50.com. You can also sign up to join the wine club. And uh, we're going to take a quick break here. Of course, if you listen to Rock and Vino, you know that we do not stop the conversation here. If you want to listen to our podcast, you can do so at rockandvino.com and hear more from Jerry. Jerry, thank you so much for talking with us.
0: All right. It's and Vino. All right.
1: And welcome back to Rock and Vino. Our guest is Jerry Casali. He is the co-founder of Devo and proprietor of the 50 by 50. I do want to ask you, um, with these initial wines that you've released with the 50 by 50, where are you sourcing your grapes?
0: Well, for the Rosé, it's um, a vineyard in Carneros, Renke Vineyards. And all I use is the Dijon 667 clone. And I just find that, that that has a certain floral fragrance and weight to it, you know, that's perfect to make rosé. And I make rosé on purpose. It's not an afterthought or runoff. You know, it's not that. It's We pick uh, when the bricks are right to make rosé, and um, we keep the juice in contact with the skins for only about an hour to get that nice salmon pink color. And, uh, you know, after the open tank fermentation, it goes into the cold, um, stainless steel tanks. You know, there's not in, of course, no oak or anything (laughs) made in classic Rosé style with, you know, very tiny bit of manipulation. Um, you know, that's it. Try to make it as fresh as possible.
1: Um, it's so bright and balanced it, and mm-hmm. just, as as you mentioned, floral, but there's a flintiness to it. I mean, it's really lovely.
2: Yeah, that's it's a beautiful wine. That's I love making
0: rosé from Pinot Noir Grapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, personally, I love that. So that even though it's nothing like Provence wine, there's something about the weight and the experience of it that's like drinking a decent Provençal french
3: rosé mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: yeah it's quite it's quite lovely refreshing light this the color of the wine is absolutely stunning this beautiful salmon color um yeah. and you know one interesting thing that i saw on the the bottle is that you have braille on the bottle is is <laughs> yeah. what's the story behind that
3: oh
0: god i uh i guess i stole that from chaputier uh I think they have braille on the bottle. I thought it was funny because I, I, I thought this will give a, um, a person who has no eyesight a, um, a leg up in a blind tasting. Yeah, blind <laughs> tasting.
2: That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, seeing as our podcast is rock and vino, um, I'd love yeah. to know what song that you would say, or maybe Ooh. artist. Mm-hmm. Represents uh, your bottle of rosé, and then you know wow. we're we actually just opening your pinot. So if you want to go into pinot too, and then we'll talk about that.
3: Yeah,
0: boy, that's a darn good question. <laughs> I, I don't know if there's any, I don't know if there's any Devo song that would go with rosé. <laughs> uh, as much as I'm a wine aficionado, Devo is really not associated with it as a group.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe uh, let's see, with the rosé, with the rosé. Maybe Lana Del Rey.
1: Ah, mm. oh, lovely. That's a great suggestion. That is lovely. Okay. Mm. I like that. Yeah. Nice. And we've just opened up the Pinot Noir, so tell us about this one.
0: Well, that's sourced from a um, single vineyard uh, in, in Sonoma Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, Rogers Creek, and I what I buy there, uh, I have blocks and rows of uh, pomard, in mm-hmm. blocks and rows of 667 Dijon. And the, and the vines are really old there, uh, like 20-some years old. Wow. And um, I find that the combona- combination of the Pomard with the uh, 667 gives, gives the uh, Pinot Noir the necessary structure and kind of heft you want. You know, you want Pinot Noir to be substantial, I, I don't like it to be overbearing, but mm-hmm. I, I want it substantial. And um, that spends um, that spends about fourteen months on a combination of neutral and new oak.
2: It's nice. It has a really good weight to it, you know it's a lot of sometimes Pinot Noirs can be really light mm-hmm. and watery, if you will. but this one has yeah, a really like nice. That. yeah, yeah, this one's amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has such a good weight and um, structure to it. Um, yeah, really well done.
0: I, I just like it to be, you know, it's my taste. I mean, I like it to be in the Goldilocks realm of not too heavy, not too light, right. not too acidic, mm-hmm. not too oaked and fruity. So it's, I I like the wine. You know, I make something that I like to drink. How, what else can you do? Of course. Uh, I I wouldn't want to just start making wine that I think I need to make to sell it. I, I'm not. That's not me. Uh, it's too hands-on and personal, but I, I uh, you know, I don't eat a bunch of red meat. You know, when mm-hmm. I do, I, I eat rare grilled baby lamb chops. You know,
3: mm.
0: and so my wine goes with those baby lamb chops, but it also goes with a pizza margarita. Yep. you know, it also goes with some uh, cedar plank uh, copper river, copper river salmon with a little, you know, little bit of barbecue sauce on it. Mm. And,
3: you
0: know, so it's it's versatile.
2: Yeah. You know, you know uh, the other thing I really love about Pinot Noir, because I am also a huge, huge Pinot fan, and somebody pointed this out to me, is that, because um, I, I prefer red wines, but Pinot's my number one, to white wines. All right. Um, but the cool thing about Pinot is that it doesn't stain your lips or your teeth. <laughs> so you can drink as much of it as you want.
0: <laughs> well, that's right. And because the tannins are low, you wake up without a fuzzy head. Mm. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs>
1: Yeah.
3: So,
2: what uh, what uh, song or artist would you say represents your Pinot? Uh
3: huh. Jeez. Mm.
1: We're asking the tough questions,
3: Jerry. Yeah. Today.
0: <laughs> that is. That is. I would say um, David Bowie from the Young Americans period. Love it.
2: Now you know, Jerry. So you have your beautiful wines. Um, you've created amazing albums and records that you've released. Do you find a correlation between um you know releasing maybe your first vintage of wine to you know releasing an album that you've you worked so hard and long on? Do you find like that to be a similar experience?
0: Yeah, yeah, I always did. i mean i I, I think a lot of people don't understand that, but there's a big connection between music and and wine. There really is and i and, and you know, you could ask that of Les Claypool, you yeah. know you could ask that of Maynard Keenan. You could probably ask that of what's his name, Kyle McLaughlin. I mean, Mm. there's reasons, you know, that you when you play music, right, you're doing it because you love it and you have an idea, and you're not you're not thinking you're going to be famous or rich, but you're. It's the creativity and the passion, and and then if you're lucky, other people like it, and if you're lucky, you make money from it, Mm -hmm. and. It's the same thing with wine. Wine is a living thing, like music, it's passion. If you make the wine, you're the last person that is ever going to see money from it, because you know that distributors have a stranglehold on the business, and so you're you're at the end of the line. Mm -hmm. You're going to lose money, you know, unless you're lucky. But that doesn't stop you, because when you open that bottle of wine, like your first release, and you open it the first time it's ready to drink and then you open it a year later and then you open another one a year later mm. each time you do it you get something else out of it and it you bring something else to it because you've changed it's changed same thing with a song I, when i play a song that i wrote a co-wrote 20 years after i wrote it i'm not tired of playing it because it's still alive to me and i i feel differently about it now and i Get different things, different, different satisfaction out of playing it than I did when it was new. That's so, awesome. you know, it's it it doesn't get old. If yeah. if that was the case, you know, think about anything that matters. If you if it was a case of hey, did that been there, then you might as well have sex once and then just never do it again.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <Right>?
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, well, why are you still doing that
3: after all these years? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Because it's still interesting, fascinating, and brings you joy. I do want uh, yeah. to yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> talk about collaboration. Yeah. I do want to talk about the element of collaboration, because it certainly was mm-hmm. part of working in Devo. I'm sure mm-hmm. it is part of your filmmaking and uh, when you make mm-hmm. videos. How do you work in collaboration when you're working on a project like this, the 50 by 50?
0: Well, of course, I I work um, I work closely with uh, an enologist, you know, the, the chemical numbers guy. You know, we go out in the vineyards, and he's got his little kit, and we're checking all the the aspects of the of the growing of the grapes, and where the acid is at, and all that, and and you know, bounce things off of him. He he knows what I want. Mm. And he he's, you know, telling me here's the best way to get it this this year, because every year is like starting over. It's like we've just been talking about nature, you know, just because you're going to the same blocks and rows with the same grapes. Nature deals you these, you know, just random whammies, you know, like a roulette wheel. And you're dealing with new new variables every year. And so it's you know it's not like making vodka it's a living thing and it you're trying to make that wine the same way you loved it before but uh it's, it's, it's out of your control
1: right it's also an expression of everything that happened that year so there's that mm-hmm. exactly Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: exactly so that's very that collaboration is really important mm-hmm. and you know you're you're trying to collaborate with your uh people that are out there representing you trying to sell the wine and I deal with um you know a guy i like and 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 we have we share aesthetics for the labels, the labeling and you know the graphics and all all that and a person to run the website and there's just a lot of people you have to get along with
1: mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah, okay. thank you, Jerry. Okay,
0: you guys. See you soon. <laughs> See All you. Right. Bye. Bye.
1: That is Jerry Casali. He is co-founder of Devo and proprietor of the 50 by 50, which you can find online at the 50 by 50.com. And find out more about Rockin' and Vino and listen to podcasts at rockinvino.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Rockin' Vino. Check out more great content online at rockinvino.com.